0: You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18-25. to 25. Paul writes it to a church that's a hot mess in a hotbed of industry in an extraordinarily uh, diverse cultural context, cultural city. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. The message of the cross is, say it with me, foolishness. Come on now. All right. I want you to stop for a minute, and I want you to reach deep, reach deep for your inner charismatic, the inner Pentecostal inside of you. Reach deep and give me some voice this morning. All right. Let's, let's read the text. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are being destroyed, but it is the power of God for those of us who are being saved. It is written in Scripture, let's read this line together. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will reject the intelligence of the intelligent. Just let that sit. It's written in Scripture where God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and reject the intelligence of the intelligent. So Paul goes on and he poses a question. Where are the wise? Where are the legal experts? Where are today's debaters? Hasn't God made the wisdom of the world foolish. In God's wisdom, he determined that the world would not come to know him through its wisdom. Sidestep. In other words, God didn't choose apologetics as his approach. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying God didn't try to reason logically with the world that he is the God of heaven and earth. That wasn't the approach he took. Instead, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of preaching. Jews ask for signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, which is a scandal to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's power and God's wisdom. Who's God's power and who's God's wisdom? This is because the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Verse 26. Look at your situation when you were called, brothers and sisters. By ordinary human standards, not many were wise, not many were powerful, not many were from the upper class. But God chose what the world considers foolish to shame the wise. God chose what the world considers weak to shame the strong. And God chose what the world considers low class and low life, what is considered to be nothing, to reduce what is considered to be something to nothing. So no human being can brag in God's presence. It is because of God that you are in Christ Jesus. He became wisdom for us. Christ became wisdom for us. This means that he made us righteous and holy, and he delivered us. This is consistent with what was written. The one who brags should brag, and the Lord. If <clears throat> We want to know what wisdom looks like. We look at Christ. But I need you to catch this text. There is a contradiction between what the world says is wise and what God says is wise. To illustrate that in more of a story form, I want to tell you this story, and we're going to do a lot of reading. It's easier just to read it together. Uh, in the late 2nd century, Marcus Manicius Felix, a Christian, recorded an extended debate between two of his companions. They were walking along uh, the beach of Ostia when who who is a, an aristocratic Roman, a non-Christian, encounters a conversation with Octavius, a provincial lawyer and confessed Christian. And they have this encounter because Cecilius stops to pay respect to a pagan idol, and it spurs on this fascinating conversation between Octavius, a provincial lawyer and Christian, and Sicilius, a non-Christian and aristocratic Roman. And so Marcus, Minicius Felix begins to record this in his mind as oratory cultures would, as oral cultures would, and then eventually puts pen to paper. This is late second century conversation. So this is how the early church would be described. This is Christianity back in the day. Cecilius, not a Christian, says to Octavius, a Roman Christian, take a look at your gatherings. What are they made up of? Mostly women. Gullible children. The majority are from the working classes. Not well-educated, mostly poor, and even slaves. It makes me laugh when I think of how poor you are. Barely enough to live on. If this God of yours is so great and so loving, why are so many of you poor? Either he's not that loving and doesn't care that you are poor, or he is not that great and is unable to do anything about it. Some God. No wonder you're all regarded as fools. Octavius replies, If you had bothered to take the time to find out, you would know that there are many from the upper classes among our number, even some of Caesar's staff. And notable scholars who were once pagans have written in defense of our faith for the more educated to consider. But let's not quibble. Like, I wish we taught like that. Like, I will not quibble with you. No, 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 no quibbling. You should do that at work and at school tomorrow. I will not quibble. Many of our number, most of our number, are what? Poor. Many of our number, most of our number are poor. But what is more important is how we regard ourselves. We consider ourselves to be rich. We have that which is most valuable, the most precious gift, which cannot be lost. And for your information, there are those of us who are wealthy. We do not despise wealth. We welcome it when it comes lawfully, but we do not lust after it. And when we get more wealth, we simply give more away. Wealth can be a great burden. It weighs you down with many cares and concerns. Traveling light has its own advantages, some big advantages. Cecilius replies, what concerns me is what you really are. It's like Cecilius is about to get real. This is the reason that you are hated across all the lands of this vast empire. Let's get to the real problem. You are atheists. Octavius replies, yes, we are are atheists. If you mean that we do not pray to or believe in all of the gods that we are expected to worship, but these are not gods. We worship the one true God the Lord over all. Cecilius replies, How you tire me with reckless babble. I shall not take the time now to answer you except to say, How absurd to think that even if the one true God, as you assert, were to come to earth, he would surely do better than come to than to come as an unschooled working class carpenter in a place like Galilee and Judea. And if forgiveness were to be found through some man, I assure you that it would never come through the death of some convicted and crucified criminal. But let's put aside such simplicity and naivete for now, for we are a tolerant people, and you are free to believe as you wish. In many ways, you do not sound all that different from some of the mystery religions, and they are left alone. But what makes you people so offensive is your stubbornness. Believe what you will, but that is no excuse for the lack of patriotism. All right, I'm going to pause for a minute. The reason why the early church was hated was, was not because they did good works. It's not because they even believed that Jesus was simply Lord. The reason why the early church was hated is because they were bad Romans. Because their allegiance was sworn to Jesus as king. That was why they were hated. That's why he brings up patriotism out of nowhere. Let that settle. Holy Spirit of God, let that settle in our hearts. Holy Spirit of God, let that settle in our hearts. Cecilius goes on to say, you people are happy to benefit from all that is ours, living in this greatest time of all history, but where's your gratitude? You are anti-social snobs. You will not show proper respect for our anniversary festivals, which were their patriotic festivals. You will not sacrifice to the genius of the emperor. You will not fight and join the empire. Simply put, you are disloyal, unpatriotic, and not to be trusted. As far as I'm concerned, you are a danger to society. That's it. Octavius says, hold on, one at a time, please. We do not join the empire in that way, and we do not fight because we do not believe in killing. My, how times change. We love our enemies and do good to them. My, how times change. Even though we are often hunted down and killed because of accusers like you, we do not even take up arms to defend ourselves. My, how times change. So I fail to see how we are any danger to anyone. But yes, you are right. We do not pray to the emperor or join with our neighbors in the sacrifices to the gods. But while we do not pray to the emperor, we do pray for the emperor. We recognize those in authority as appointed by God to preserve order. Notice that it says preserve order. Say preserve order. Preserve order to keep the world from running off the rails. That's how you read Romans 13. Not as some God-ordained thing where he's blessing things, but where he's keeping the world from running off the rails. That's the point. We seek, we pray for the peace and tranquility of the empire. God knows if any group seeks a peaceful and undisturbed life, it is us. We never know when we will be blamed for anything that is going wrong, be hunted down and arrested. I want to make sure you get this. This is the early church description of the church. This was the witness of the early church. There was the wisdom of Rome and the wisdom of the world, and then there was the wisdom of God as reflected through the person of Jesus for which the early church had sworn full allegiance. And it dictated an entirely different way of living. Because what the early church understood is what we sometimes forget. The wisdom of God creates a tension with the wisdom of the world. And at the end of the day, we do not like tension. Say tension. It unsettles us. And who likes to be unsettled? We like things resolved. We like things to be manageable. Some of us want things predictable. We want measurable outcomes. Think about how we do goal setting. We use the SMART model. Remember the SMART model, S-M-A-R-T? The SMART framework where goals are to be what? Specific and then measurable and then achievable or attainable and then relevant and then time bound and it's a, it's a fine little it's a fine little helpful criteria it's practical as it can as it can possibly be but it leaves very little space for unpredictability and tension it leaves very little space for the tensions that will exist in a life trying to achieve a goal where not all things are going to always be easily if not ever resolvable and the reason is, is because tension is always a result of conflicting forces. Tension is the result of unpredictability, immeasurability, unresolvability. I don't know if unresolvability is a word, but it is for this message. Tensions stretch us. And who likes to be stretched? I've never met somebody who's like, Fred, yo, know, like, I like being unsettled and disrupted. I hope today that everything I do is completely unpredictable. I've never met anybody like that. We might be okay with it, but at the end of the day, it's not something we particularly enjoy. But this rubber band enjoys being stretched. See, the thing about a rubber band is it's only good if it is what? If it is stretched. If you don't stretch a rubber band, can the rubber band be what the rubber band's meant to be? No. As a matter of fact, if you leave the rubber band alone and you never stretch it at all, what will happen to the rubber band? It will dry rot. And then all of a sudden you try to use it. Where's that rubber band? And you stretch it. What happens to the rubber band? It snaps. See, that's our souls. When we aren't willing to live in tension. Our souls, our spiritual lives begin to dry because we don't like the tensions that the gospel invites us to live within. So we try to resolve them all. I don't like that person, so I'm going to get rid of that person. I don't like that church, I'm going to change churches. I disagree with that person, therefore I'm going to cut that person out. I disagree with that person, I'm not even going to listen to that person. And So we just resolve the tensions. Until one day where we can't, and we need to stretch, but we can't stretch, because we've never allowed ourselves to be stretched. See, here's the thing about Christianity. Our faith is one of paradox. Everybody say paradox. The whole basis of our faith is tension. The word paradox is defined by the Oxford. So let's let's define it, though. A seemingly absurd or contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated, everybody say investigated. And that's the key. When investigated, may prove to be well founded or true. This is a paradox. A paradox is a seemingly contradictory statement. So our entire faith is wrapped up in paradox. Listen. Blessed are those who hunger. Matthew five six. No one comes to me will ever be hungry. John six thirty five. Which one is it? A person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Romans three twenty eight. A person is justified by works and not by faith alone. James two twenty one two twenty four. Which one is it? And keep in mind, I said investigate it. If we investigate it, we find where the paradoxes are, where the tensions are. Everybody say tensions. My yoke is easy, Jesus says in Matthew 11.30. How difficult the road that leads to life, Jesus says in Matthew 7.14. Which one is it? Right? Like, that's how I'm living with Jesus. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. Matthew 5, 16. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them, Matthew 6.1. What do I do? I don't know how to hell. Like, what do I do? Like we're all like, I'm not doing anything. I want to do. Do not judge. Matthew 7.1. Judge according to righteous judgment. John 7.24. Answer a fool, Proverbs 26:5, one verse earlier. Don't answer a fool. Now that's messed up. Right, like like, like, even the proverb writer is like, I'm creating tension. Don't answer a fool. Answer a fool. Ha, 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 Like, hey, what are you doing, man? Like, that's not even, that's the, that's the paradox of our faith. Not even that. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they'll inherit the earth. Jesus said, whoever finds his life will what? Lose it? And whoever loses his life for my sake will what? Find it? What? It's meant to create tension. Because if we can't live in tension, we can't love enemies. We just blow them up. We can't live in community of differences. We just dip out and find an affinity group. That's not all. Here's what the Scripture says. We see unseen things. We conquer by yielding. We find rest under a yoke. We reign by serving. We are made great by becoming small. We are exalted when we are humble. We become wise by being fools for Christ's sake. We are made free by becoming bondservants. We gain strength when we are weak. We triumph through defeat. We find victory by glorying in our infirmities. We live by dying. And if you think about it, Jesus himself is paradox. Fully God and fully man. The Trinity, the triune God is paradox. God in three persons. One God in three persons. And Jesus teaches us that if we want to be first, we got to be last. If we want to labor, we have to fight. If we we labor, we find rest. If we give, we will receive. If we become enslaved to him, we'll be free in him. Something as resolute and resolved as truth can actually set us free, and if we want to live, we must be willing to die figuratively and literally speaking. The apostle Paul once said of his co-workers that they were genuine, yet regarded as impostors, known, yet regarded as unknown, dying, and yet we live on, beaten, and yet not killed, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, poor, yet making many rich, having nothing, yet possessing all things. 2 Corinthians 6, 8 through 10. When I am weak, I am strong. Which one is it? Tension. There are many things to say about the paradoxes of our faith, but one thing I want to say today is that they show how the wisdom of God can run contrary with the wisdom of society. sometimes God's wisdom God's wisdom resolves the conflicts and contradictions and other times God's wisdom opens up and leaves us with tensions to manage. In the conflicts and contradictions. In a society categorized by fast food, live streaming, same day shipping, clear categories of separation and belonging, ideological understandings that generally leave you with two or three choices, it's difficult to embrace and hold complex truths and tensions, ones that require meditation. Wrestling with Scripture. Engagement with biblical community so that, as Proverbs 27 says, iron will actually sharpen iron. And so in Christ, God comes into the world speaking truth, but does it relationally. What I mean is, He doesn't just settle for sermons of abstract truths that are just these platitude statements. But he speaks truth and teaches how it impacts us neighbor to neighbor, person to person. And it's how he does that that runs against the wisdom of this world. God comes, the God of heaven and earth comes into the world, speaking truth relationally because of love and for love, never usurping, never flexing power, privilege, or position, but as Paul said, instead empties himself and comes to us as one of us to be with us so that we could see how God's wisdom is to work between us and for our own good. So there's an upside to tension. So for those of you who take notes, you might want to take notes. Here's my practical (laughs) things, Which will leave tension. What if tensions are meant to keep us alert to God's wisdom? Everybody say alert. Like, what if the tensions are meant to keep us alert to God's wisdom, to how God is working in what unsettles us, that keeps us awakened so that we'll look around rather than start looking down, so that we won't settle and resign ourselves to the situation at hand, but so that we'll feel what we feel, so that we'll look out for better answers and for a better way. So what if the tensions are meant to keep us alert to God's wisdom in the world. So we don't just settle for what the society says is wise. That to be this, you have to be that. When God says something different, but it's just not as clean, not as black and white, not as binary, maybe some gray. Maybe there's a third way that no one ever talks about. You don't just have to be liberal or conservative. You don't just have one of two choices. What if it's meant to keep us alert? Number two, what if if the tensions are meant to keep us reaching for God's wisdom? Like reaching in such a way where we constantly pursue and we're asking how would God respond to what it is that unsettled us? And we're, we're pushed then to pray. We're pushed to search scriptures. We're pushed to have conversations with people. We're pushed to listen. See, what, what, if the, what if the command of loving enemies is meant to push us closer to an enemy so that we'll discover the image of God even in our enemy and find out that we have more in common than we do in indifference? But the threat and the fight, flight, or freeze of the fear that's going on, we don't trust, we're too afraid to die, so we show enough to live. And so we certainly don't approach an enemy. And so we miss the image of God inside the enemy and maybe even miss a friend. Churches do it all the time when they ask people who doesn't look like them, talk like them, smell like them, act like them to leave. Because what if their presence here disrupts what we think is good and rise and safe? I'll never forget when I had an elder tell me, when years ago when I said, hey, I'm going to take food to some guys who are living on the streets. I've seen them there and I'm going to take food to them. I was, I was 23 years old and I knew everything about everything. And I'm sitting there with my elders, and my elder says, no, you're not going to do that. I forbid it. And I'm like, you know, thinking to myself, first off, you're not my daddy. And I was like, yeah, kind of you are. So, um, And I said, why not? And he said, because they'll stab you to death. Did you not just read the newspaper article that it's not safe? It's not safe. It's not safe for you to take food to hungry people. You know, y'all know y'all thought that. I mean, come on now. Don't act like that's new. Stranger danger, Right. Let's not act like that's new. There was a tension there. There was a tension every moment with every rushed heartbeat I felt when I walked into a place where I certainly didn't belong. There was tension there. There was tension when me and my friend Solomon were surrounded by a bunch of guys hocked up on meth. There was tension there. All we had was an sized cookie sheet. And I was about to get Bruce Lee on him if I had to. I, I really wasn't. I was like, in the, Jesus, in the name of 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 Jesus. For real, I was in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. Backing up. There's tension there in those moments. Because it pushes us to prayer. It pushes us to scripture. It pushes us to community. Number three. What if tensions are meant to keep us pursuing God's wisdom? to trust that God's presence is there even in what unsettles us. Why is it Christians don't know how, why is it we do not know how to live in detention and instead resolve it by cutting people out of our lives so easily? By claiming a lane in the sand, lying in the sand and claiming a lane as if it's the only lane on the highway with our absolute certitude and end up creating an us-versus-them culture. Show me in the Scripture where there's an us-versus-them culture that the church is supposed to bear witness to. Tell me if that's what Cecilius and Octavius encountered. I don't think so. Blessed are the peacemakers, but only if they're willing to live in the tension of making peace. Blessed are those who pray for their enemies, love their enemies, only if they're willing to do so. Blessed are those who find that it is better to give than to receive, but only if those willing to give are willing to give above and beyond what they think they could. Blessed are those who love their neighbor as themselves, but only those who are willing to even meet and know their neighbor's name. See, to live in the tension is to embrace the waiting and the longing the hoping and the sharing, the conversing, the discerning, and above all, learning how to be loved by God as you learn how to love others in your pursuit of what is wise. Tension presses us to discover how God sees what we see and resolves what unsettles us. And if there is a resolution to be experienced, it will be found, because that's what God's wisdom will do. But if there's not a resolution that is to be found in this world as we live in the reign of sin and death, we will then be called by God to remain to live in the tension. And the journey of that pursuit will move us closer to God, and He will form us, flex us, stretch us, Deepen us so that our only hope will be in the Lord. And that's what Paul means in 1 Corinthians 7 when he says no one should brag except for bragging in Jesus. Because if we're willing to trust God in the tension and resist, everybody say resist, resist the need to resolve it so quickly, God will form us from the inside out. And when life hits us between the eyes and death and disease comes and it has to stretch us, we won't be like an unused rubber band that just breaks. We will be stretched. But only if we're willing to live in the tension. The Holy Spirit of God equips us to live in the tension. And godly wisdom shows us how. Wisdom begins by teaching that we must learn and discern the tension in the company of others in whom God's reign is embraced. Next week, what I want to do is I just want to tell stories that were written in Williamsburg Christian Church as to what this looks like practically. Today, all I wanted you to do is to wrestle with the idea that you are either willing to live in tension or you are wrestling to try and resolve it. And I want to push back against your need to resolve it, and I want to push you toward the one who gives you a godly wisdom and who calls you to live within the tensions that it creates which then leads me to close with Paul. So the same letter, we close with this. This is literally the next page of the letter he writes, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I didn't come preaching God's secrets to you like I was an expert in speech or wisdom. I had made up my mind not to think about anything while I was with you except Jesus Christ and to preach Him as crucified. I stood in front of you with weakness, fear, and a lot of shaking. My message and my preaching weren't presented with convincing wise words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit and the power. I did this so that your faith might not depend on the wisdom of people, but on the power of God. Now listen to this. What we say is wisdom to people who are mature. What we say is wisdom to people who are mature. And therein lies the rub, brothers and sisters. Those of us who are not mature in our faith... Will not see the wisdom of God. We will just buy into the wisdom of society and we will resolve all the tensions it creates. And he goes on to say that it isn't a wisdom that comes from the present day or from today's leaders who are being reduced to nothing. That'll preach. We talk about God's wisdom, which has been hidden as secret. God determined this wisdom in advance before time began for our glory. It is a wisdom that none of the present-day rulers have understood, because if they understood it, they would have never crucified the Lord of glory. For this is precisely what was written. God has prepared things for those who love Him that no eye has seen or ear has heard that haven't crossed the mind of any human being." God has revealed these things to us through the Spirit. The Spirit searches everything, including the depths of God. Who knows a person's depths except their own spirit that lives in them? In the same way, no one has known the depths of God except God's Spirit. We haven't received the world's Spirit, but God's Spirit, so that we can know the things given to us by God. These are the things we are talking about. Not with words taught by human wisdom, but with words taught by the Spirit. We are interrupting spiritual things to spiritual. We're interpreting spiritual things to spiritual people. This whole loving enemies business and loving your neighbor as yourself business and giving to those who ask without expectation of return business. This whole love your neighbor as you love yourself business. All of that stuff that we can't do very well is because we oftentimes struggle to be spiritual people. We are interpreting spiritual things to spiritual people, but people who are unspiritual do not accept things from God's Spirit. So we pack up our toys and leave. They are foolishness to them and can't be understood because they can only comprehend, be comprehended in a spiritual way. Spiritual people comprehend everything, but they themselves aren't understood by anyone. In other words, you just end up looking like a freak, like Octavius. Who has known the mind of the Lord who will advise him? Read this with me. But we have the mind of Christ. See, in our story earlier, good old Cecilius just could not get his mind around what Octavius was describing. But Octavius could. I don't know what's going on here. I'm not. Octavius could get his mind around it. So could the early church, and they knew that to follow Jesus as King as citizens of God's kingdom in the midst of empire would have them commit faithfully to trust the lordship of Jesus and his teaching no matter the tension it created. And they knew that if they were to be faithful in a world committed to its own versions of wisdom, that they would need to learn how to be stretched and unsettled. And in being stretched and unsettled, they would find themselves stretched around and settled in God's wisdom revealed to the world in Jesus Christ. And they would find themselves liberated by God's wisdom. Every week we gather, we are liberated by God's wisdom. Every week we gather, we remember what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Every week we gather, we hold the bread and we hold the cup. We hold the wisdom of God in our hands. And yet, I need to remind you that Cecilius, and like many in society today, sees this as absurd. And yet all of us come to this table saying that we're going to learn to live in the tension of the wisdom of God. And so here's what I say to you. When you hold this bread and you hold this cup and you hold the body and you hold the blood of Jesus, you need to know that even in the midst of the tension that you're going to feel between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of society, you are being held in the hands of the nail-scarred Christ. You were held by Him in the midst of the tension. The question is, will you hold the tension because of him.